episode 180 of the Pilot the Pilot Podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. The Ground School app contains knowledge and skill videos. Check it out at learnthefinerpoints.com. Hi, this is Justine Harrison, General Counsel of AOPA. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's podcast is with AOPA. We are talking Warbird Aviation Case. This is the second episode we released. The FAA has just come out with an announcement on how they view this case, and it was much different than anticipated, much different than we thought. And I thought it was necessary to reach back out to Justine and AOPA and get her back on the podcast so she can talk about what's going on and and just how truly shocking this decision was. If you don't know what we're talking about right now, it's okay. Go back and listen to the first episode. It was a couple weeks ago. Go to Spotify or podcast app, wherever you listen to podcasts, type in Warbird Aviation Case, Pilot the Pilot, and it'll pop up. Listen to that first, then come here and get all the details of what's going on. Uh, this is a ever-changing case, so it could be changing by the time you're listening to this. And if so, Justine and I are probably recording a podcast right now. But I hope you guys enjoy this, and it was shocking. So uh, definitely listen to this and share it with your friends. Get the word out. Aviation, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review iTunes. That's how this episode and this podcast gets ranked. That's how Apple, iTunes, Spotify, the more subscribers that we get, the more trending it will be and more people will listen. So subscribe, tell people to subscribe, help the podcast out. You can also follow us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Check out Pilot's Coffee, the best coffee in the travel industry and arguably coffee in general. It is so good. Definitely check that out, pilotscoffee.com. Aviation, I don't want to keep you guys waiting any longer. So any further ado, here's Justine from AOPA. Justine, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I had no idea I'd be back so soon. I know, either did I. I think when we both were recording that, we weren't expecting a kind of a decision to come out so quickly. Uh, so it's definitely interesting. It is. There have been a few developments uh, that I look forward to talking about here, and and uh, there certainly will be more. Well, if you didn't catch the first episode, uh, this is for everyone listening. Now, if you didn't catch the first episode, go back and listen to that. I'll kind of catch you up with what's going on with the Warbird case and how this is affecting uh, more than just the war, Warbirds, if I can speak correctly, <laughs> uh, but how this has kind of uh, turned into a bigger thing than, than what initially thought. So uh, we're going to kind of carry on to what has happened in the decisions that have been made and kind of what the FAA has come out and said. But if you'd like to listen to the first episode to get more of a background, I highly recommend you go listen to that episode first so you don't seem lost. But anyways, we are here today. Today is what? July 20th. And we talked probably not even a month ago. And we both, like we said, had no idea that it would come out this fast or even really um, w- with the, the ruling that they came out with. So why don't you kind of catch up with what, catch us up with what's happened in the last couple of weeks? Sure. So uh, to briefly recap, uh, this all started out of a case where the FAA decided to pursue one instructor in uh, one limited category aircraft, a beautiful P-40 Warhawk, but one with a uh, limited airworthiness certificate. And they are pursuing three cases. 
One was, uh, and still is, a certificate enforcement action against the CFI. One is a civil monetary penalty action against the aircraft owner. And then a third was uh, they issued a cease and desist, which is a really rarely used tool to uh, stop the flight instructor from giving instruction in the P-40. And the argument for all of these cases was that in a limited category aircraft, you cannot provide flight instruction because that constitutes carrying a person for compensation or hire. So all of a sudden, they started conflating flight instruction with carriage. So that's that's what kicked all this off. Um, then we subsequently said to the FAA, wait a second, after there was a ruling on the cease and desist where the judges just basically said in the D.C. Circuit Court, we declined to review this. The cease and desist will stand so this instructor cannot give instruction in a limited category aircraft without an exemption in place, which is what the FAA argues you need to make it legal in their eyes. And the other two cases are going along uh, to actually argue all the underlying things of is an exemption really required to do training in a limited category air- aircraft. And so while those things are percolating along, we have learned that the FAA is prosecuting other limited category instructors, including two volunteer instructors. And so with the compensation issue, they said, hey, listen, even though these folks are volunteers, they got compensated. They're accruing flight time in those planes, and they are also a engendering goodwill. And we are going to call those compensation. And also the FAA issued a notification of policy that put sweeping, sweeping obligations on not only limited category aircraft, but the FAA said for internal consistency that they were going to have to uh, put some restrictions in place or clarify, they called it, uh, that primary category aircraft out there, not primary training, to be clear, but primary category aircraft, of which there are about 30 on the registry, have to have an exemption in place to do flight training. And then to top that off, they said, oh, and those experimental aircraft, every category of experimental, you know, amateur built, R&D, exhibition, etc., All of those folks need a letter of deviation authority to give or receive training. And so what this did is the FAA said all of a sudden starting July 12th, and they gave one business day of notice, you now can't, according to the FAA, get a BFR in your own experimental aircraft or your own limited category aircraft without having FAA permission to do so. It's ridiculous. And it it flies in the face of safety. And it's now creating a lot of hurdles for folks and concerns and confusion um, that are getting in the way of training that needs to be happening, particularly right before the biggest fly-in of the year. It's just unbelievable. 
Talk a little bit about it. It is. It's it's crazy. And like uh, I think the reaction that you are having, AOPA is having, is the general consensus of the whole aviation industry. It's just kind of like, what is happening? Like, why? <laughs> why now? Why'd you do it like this? Uh, the timeline seems very rushed. Uh, there was no kind of. Uh, um, I guess the whole process just happened very quickly and they didn't involve the public with questions or anything like that or give anyone a chance to, to either fight this. So it's just kind of like, this is it. And too bad. We're, we're so sorry, but or not even sorry, but just deal with it. Justin, you bring up a really good point here, which is we have the Administrative Procedure Act out there, which is essentially like a bill of rights for folks who are regulated. And the reason that was put in place is that regulators should not just come out and impose new obligations on folks willy-nilly. It's really important to have that notice and comment period. And, you know, the industry regularly weighs in on things, um, particularly anything that that's going to have a sweeping impact. You know, the FAA can change its policy over time. There's no argument over that. But how it goes about doing that and ensuring that the public and, you know, folks who are impacted, stakeholders have the ability to comment fully so that whatever the FAA does come out with is a fully informed policy, that just didn't happen here. And so unfortunately, the FAA just came out and said, here it is, it's immediately effective. And without stakeholder input, uh, raising concerns and uh, the wording that they used and some additional things that they, they put in the policy, here they came out saying that we're here to clarify, and all they did was create mass confusion, more confusion than there already was. I, I want to say this in the nicest way and not like sound like I'm bashing the FA, but are they self-aware? Do you think that they like can understand the backlash this causes and kind of furthers the kind of overall agenda of the general aviation community thinking the FAA is out to get them, uh, villainizes them and just makes them look like the enemy. Are they self-aware of that? Or I'm just really confused by the whole thing. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what the FAA is thinking. And certainly there are always a diversity of opinions, you know, within any agency, any company, you know, we're, we're all groups of people and that doesn't mean that we all think exactly the same, but um, you're right. This certainly doesn't engender trust. Um, and when the FAA is trying to say, listen, we want you uh, to work with us on, on safety and on compliance and things, and then they turn around and do something like this that was completely avoidable. They could have gone out for notice and public comment, and they didn't. You're right. That does affect trust in the agency, and it does make people wonder, what's really going on here? Is this just a... a misstep or is there something more going on? And it certainly doesn't help us be safer pilots or give us any additional comfort to be able to go to the FAA and say, hey, I'm a little confused on any given topic. Can you help me understand your position? So, and going back to what you're talking about before, are they, is this what they did? Is it a hundred percent legal? Is there any kind of uh, missteps that they took in not having a comment period or do they have the full authority to just bring this out and enforce it right away? I have some real concerns about their legal compliance with the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and I also have some real concerns, and as as do all of the associations who are uniformly behind this. <laughs> so the associations have said, hey, wait a second, FAA, you are ignoring 
decades and decades of precedence. All of a sudden, you're coming out saying all these folks need special permission uh, to get flight training in 40,000 aircraft. And so that that impacts a significant subset of the general aviation aircraft population. But even more than that, all of a sudden, you are seeking to recharacterize what flight instruction is and what compensation for it is for. And that is regardless of what aircraft you are teaching or receiving instruction in. And that's a real problem. And by the way, (laughs) that conflicts with many decades of precedent here. You cannot just come out with a seat change and pivot around and change the characterization of flight instruction. And again, this all started with one aircraft and one pilot. And now the FAA is it seeks to double down and so so they say clarify. All they're doing is creating more and more confusion and raising more questions every time they, they do this. So I think the, the main focus uh, that we have now in the industry is where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, that is a great question. And I just pulled up your, your article and the title is Anyone Giving or Receiving Instruction in a Limited Primary or Experimental Category Aircraft is at Risk. FAA, is prose- FAA prosecutors pursuing CFIs providing training for quote unquote free. Um, that's a, it's just a crazy headline to read. And it really, like you said, it, it causes confusion. And one, there's some confusion in what I hear what an actual primary aircraft is. I, I put up a, a question block on my Instagram and there's multiple questions asking, what does primary mean? I'm hearing a ton of different things and there's really no set clarification on this. Like, am I, am I at risk for persecution? Because I think this is not primary, but someone else does. Do you have any insight on what actually primary means or no? Yes. So um, what they're talking about with this quote unquote notification of policy, which I think is actually not a policy, it's a rule that they didn't follow the rules um, on putting out. Uh, But what happened when they put that out is they said, listen, this applies if you are flying aircraft with a special airworthiness certificate in three different categories. And the reason they say that is because the language regarding not carrying persons or property for comp or hire is found in the regulations for experimental aircraft, for limited category aircraft. So that's a subset of warbirds and there's uh, around 400 or less of those on the registry right now. And then also on primary categories. So if you go and look at airworthiness categories, um, so for the airworthiness certificate that your plane holds, that's where those definitions are from. And then, so you go and you can look at part 21 to see what those requirements are. But anytime you have an aircraft, there's a restriction for what you can and can't do in the aircraft. And those are found in part 91. Um, so you've got to understand what they mean by the airworthiness certificate and which aircraft are impacted. So you would just look at your aircraft certificate and then you would look at part 91 that says, well, you may have restrictions on what you can do in an aircraft with a particular type of airworthiness certificate. So a good example would be you cannot take an experimental amateur built and start a chart company with that. It's just you can't do that with that type of airworthiness certificate. You can in an aircraft with a standard airworthiness certificate, but there are just certain types of airworthiness categories that the FAA has said 
we're categorically not going to allow you to do something uh, with that aircraft unless you have special permission from us to do it. But generally, the regulation prohibits it. But never before has that included flight instruction. Yeah, it's crazy because experimental, uh, light sport, any kind of aircraft like that can be easier to attain. And I mean, it's still expensive, but it, it is more common for someone to to find a way to get into aviation in that aspect. And it just seems like it's making it very hard. And someone today right now listening that maybe has an experimental aircraft or has a Lancer and is in their flight training in their own aircraft are going to have a lot of issues. Well, and you know, the, the thing that is so crazy about this, forget legal arguments, look at it from a pure safety standpoint. Every experimental by nature is a one-off. You know, every, the, the joy of an amateur built, and I, I've built and uh, fly one, an air cam. The joy of that is you can make it however you want. You put whatever avionics you want in. You do whatever modifications you want to do to it. And so there are no two alike. So although I can hop in a Cessna 172 at a flight school, and that's a standard category aircraft, and know that it's going to behave um, very, very similarly to another one seventy two that I jump into um, at a different flight school. It doesn't work that way for experimental aircraft. And limited category aircraft are very specialized as well. And so for those two categories, which can be more challenging to fly, given their lack of uniformity um, between aircraft and a lot of their special flight characteristics on some of them, to, to make training harder to obtain in planes that can be more challenging to fly just makes no safety sense. No, absolutely not. And it really doesn't make any sense. You've worked hard flying the line to get where you are today. From your early years flying in the military, to building flight time any way possible, to career in commercial aviation with its ups and downs. And now, retirement, the biggest investment you'll ever make. At RAA, helping pilots achieve their financial dream is what they do. They're singularly focused on making sure all your hard work, dedications, and time spent away from your family and friends pays off. So meet with a financial advisor specializing in your airline for a free consultation at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. Um, going into what to do. So say you and I, I mean, you have an experimental. Let's say you have an, you offer instruction or it's your aircraft and you're seeking instruction. What do you do? What kind of right now, what do they need to do? How do they live their life and enjoy their airplane and make sure they're not going to get in trouble? Great question. So if you fly an experimental aircraft and you're either giving or receiving instruction in that, that Jan, uh, the July 12th notification of policy the FAA put out says you need to apply for a letter of deviation authority. Now, there are two different flavors of LOTAs. Um, what the FAA is, has said for quite some time is, listen, if you're an instructor and you are providing both the instruction and the experimental plane to the student, you need to have a LOTA. And instructors would go in to their local flight standards district office, and they would put together a curriculum of what they were going to teach and how they were going to do it in their bio and put together a, a LOTA application package. And we're hearing those are taking anywhere from six to eight weeks for processing right now. And then they could teach. And then the FAA would survey that person. 
And that's been in place for a while. But what is now being said is if you are not an instructor providing the plane plus the instruction, if you're the student providing your own plane or you are an instructor teaching someone in their plane, you need a LODA. Now, the FAA has created a more streamlined process for this. Um, It's contained in that policy. You've got to send an email in to a certain email address and provide certain info. Those are getting turned around relatively quickly is what I've heard um, within a matter of days. But that letter of deviation authority then needs to be carried in the aircraft so that if you get ramp checked and uh, you are questioned about are you receiving or giving instruction in this aircraft, you have a copy of that to show along with the the other documents you would in any ramp check situation. Um, so that's for an experimental. There's this new, um, essentially expedited LODA process to follow. However, if you are someone who is so lucky as to fly a limited category aircraft, one of those gorgeous warbirds with a limited category certificate, unfortunately, both you uh, and the folks who fly primary category aircraft, and there's some gyrocopters and other really cool uh, aircraft out there, like some RANS S7s, um, those folks unfortunately have to go through an exemption process. And that one is much more burdensome. You have to uh, submit a petition for exemption to FAA headquarters. And those historically have taken four or more months to issue. Now, we believe the FAA um, will be looking at ways to speed that up. But there's not one right now, unlike for uh, experimentals. So you would need to work on getting a petition for exemption granted by the FAA to receive training or give training in your limited or primary category aircraft. And that affects a little over 400 aircraft right now. So it's, it's the experimentals. Uh, there are about 39,000 of those on the registry. They need a LODA, uh, limited and primary category. You would have to go for an exemption. With this being such a quick ruling and such a quick decision and how it came about, do you see FAA inspectors being very adamant and like actually going out there and writing it up and making sure they're prosecuting people immediately? Or is this going to be a, hey, make sure you get this? Like there might be a little bit of give. Well, that stands to be seen. Um, But what we do know is from a practical perspective, with 40,000 impacted aircraft, the FAA simply doesn't have the manpower to run out and create an immediate dragnet on this. That said, if they come across situations, they're going to take a look at it and, uh, and make a decision on how they want to proceed. And, you know, we would hope that when they find folks who may not have the paperwork in place that the FAA uh, believes is needed, um, that they would use the compliance program that's out there and just try to bring folks into what the FAA says would be compliance. But until this is out there for a while, we're, we're just not going to see it. Um, we're not going to know. The good question is, who does this benefit? Like, was there any big player behind the scenes? Like, when I say big player, I'm mean, just trying to think of someone that this could benefit and maybe like a 
the bigger flight schools or the bigger manufacturers. This is something that's been on their agenda for a while, trying to find a way to make sure people only stay in their aircraft? Or is this just all truly this one case has kind of exploded into this and it's kind of a one-off that has turned into something no one ever imagined? As far as I can tell, this is a one-off where the FAA legal department has made some really bad, broad arguments and keeps doubling down at every chance to do so with tremendous collateral damage. I mean, if you think of this, I can't see any benefit to anyone in this. It's certainly not helping safety. It's not making people access more and and better training. It's not even giving them access to the training they had two weeks ago. It's creating a huge deluge of work. Think about this. There could be 40,000 aircraft owners submitting LODA uh, applications through this new expedited process to the FAA. So it's creating this huge administrative burden within the FAA. And if they're able to turn those around in a couple of days, well, that shows that it's just a paperwork exercise that has no substance behind it and does nothing to enhance safety. And so I just can't see any benefit to anyone. And that's why this has just been, I think, such a surprise to the industry that they would choose to do this and then double down. And then on top of it, make this even more complicated by arguing in legal cases that uh, flight instruction compensation uh, is goodwill. We This rule about compensation, or not even a rule, it's an interpretation. Um, but this interpretation about what compensation can be in the FAA's eyes has been around for quite some time. But we have never seen them use it against flight instructors before. So, so there are a lot of alarm bells ringing here, um, and there's no clear logic or common sense to any of it. So where does this lead for the future of flight instruction? Is this the first step in the FAA trying to crack down on, on flight instruction and kind of um, figure out a way to, to expand this past limited category? And they're trying to, maybe this is their first step and this is what they've always wanted to do? Or do you foresee, an AOPA foresee this just being a uh, limited aircraft? Uh, Warbird and light sport in that category? Well, right now, it is just limited category aircraft, experimental category aircraft, and primary category aircraft that the FAA is saying this impacts. However, when you look at the arguments they are making and the fact that the FAA legal team is saying, oh, we need to change this and that for consistency. With the legal arguments they're making, it has the potential to impact flight training more broadly, how it's characterized, whether it is compensation or hire or carriage. And that would turn over 70 years of precedent on its face. So that would also be in in direct conflict with safety needs um, and impacts. So the industry is united in coming against this. If you look at all the different groups um, who have been chiming in on this, you've got AOPA, EAA, NBAA, HAI, Gamma, um, SAFE, NAFI, I mean, ICAS, um, 
the International Council of Air Shows. You've got um, the North American Trainers Association. I can't remember the last time you had essentially every industry association coming together to say, FAA, you've got this wrong. Um, and we will not allow you to go down this road. So uh, there is a united fight against this. Now, while we fight that bigger fight on the issues, in the meantime, pilots need to know what, what to do to stay out of trouble. And again, that is, um, if you don't want to be in the FAA's legal crosshairs and be, be a test case, if you are giving or receiving instruction in an experimental, get a LOTA. And if you are giving or receiving instruction in a primary category or limited category aircraft, make sure there's an exemption in place. And unlike in the past, this applies regardless of whether you you own the aircraft or not. It's crazy. It just, yeah, it's just wild. It just makes you really think like what their plan is for the future of aviation and what makes our general aviation so great and so rare in the world is the freedom to kind of do as you please. And especially with flight instruction, like we said, and to change that and to change the, the home builds, uh, light sport, everything we're talking about just kind of takes away the freedom of aviation and what people love about aviation so much. Well, and I think, you know, one of the other important things that folks need to remember is that it's not just the importance of getting your primary instruction done, but it's really the importance for not just legal currency, but proficiency that you are able to get whatever training you want. So, you know, if I'm going to go fly somewhere and I want to start going into to backcountry strips or I want to go do some mountain flying, you know, although I'm not working towards a rating and although I'm not getting an endorsement, um, it's in the interest of safety for the industry um, for me to be able to access whatever training I think I need for whatever kind of flying that I want to do and have quick access to that training and no barriers in the way. And even with this load of process, you know, think of it. If I'm, let's say I'm in, in the Idaho backcountry right now and I decide um, I want to go do some, some flying with a, a local instructor to do some backcountry challenging things um, and get into some tiny one-way in, one-way out airstrips uh, before I attempt to do it on my own. I now have to stop, not do it, uh, until I get FAA permission to do so. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point because I didn't even think about that. What if you're the student, you're out in Idaho, you're just like, hey, I've always wanted to do what Trent Palmer does or the Flying Cowboys or whatever they see on YouTube. So you go up, you get in a, a Super Cub or a carbon, carbon Cub, whatever it may be, and you want some instruction. Uh, is this, Say the FAA comes meet you. The person you're flying the plane in didn't get the LOTA. Is the student required? Will the student get in trouble because the instructor and the owner of the airplane didn't get a LOTA or is it just going to be on the operator and owner? It's possible. It is possible. We'll see how the FAA actually implements this. But one of the things that, that you'll notice in that notification of policy is that really broad definition that the FAA uses for operate. So operate means to use, to authorize, to use, to allow to use, and so all of a sudden, when you're talking about somebody who operates an aircraft, it could be the owner, it could be the student, it could be the 
instructor, etc. Now, if you're getting that backcountry training in a plane with a standard airworthiness certificate, the FAA doesn't have a problem with that. But if you are getting that training in an experimental limited or primary category aircraft, that's when the FAA says you need that special permission. And what's so ridiculous about that is I could go and get training in a Cetabria in the backcountry. And that would be helpful. But I happen to fly a twin tail dragger that's open cockpit with totally different handling characteristics. So I want to get my training in the plane that I'm going to fly. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And the FAA is getting in the way of that. And just everything, every time we, we keep asking a question or talking, we, I feel like we have the same reaction where we just like shake our head and laugh and just like how crazy this is, you know, (laughs) it's just like, what, why? Yeah. And, and we may never get the answer to why, but what we have to do is to create some certainty here. You know, it's really funny in the FA's notification policy, they, they notify that there is a There was a disconnect, even internally at the FAA, about uh, what was and wasn't allowed. And now the FAA is saying, well, we are just, quote, clarifying things. And gosh, we got it all wrong for many, many years internally, even with guidance to our own inspectors. Um, Yet, at the same time, we're going to prosecute people. I mean, that defies common sense. Yeah. Let's say um, beginning of next year, we go through this whole process, all 40,000 airplanes, get their load up, blah, blah, blah. They do what they need to do. January, February comes around. They're like, hey, just kidding. We actually think that's a really bad idea. What happens then? Uh, just <laughs> They have all these LODAs, wasted time, money for applications, kind of just like a hope they all forget about this. Or I just, I mean, that could be an actual outcome that comes is that everyone does this. And then it's like, JK, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> You know, so there are a lot of what ifs out there. Um, you know, fortunately, right now, um, if you're applying for one of those LODAs, um, particularly an expedited one, there's no money involved. Um, but if you are going to put together a LODA to go in and you're an instructor providing both the, the experimental plane and the training, um, sometimes people hire folks to help them do that. And it's really not unusual to hire an, an attorney to help you through the exemption process because that's pretty legalistic. So there is money involved there for a lot of folks. Um, but what could happen down the road? Well, there are a myriad of things. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is the FAA could be overruled in the courts and the courts could determine that the FAA's interpretation is wrong. And so here's the interesting thing that we last time we talked about everything that was happening in relation to that cease and desist case that was in the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the layer just under the US Supreme Court. What's interesting is that decision solely said we're not going to get in the way and and review and make a decision on whether this cease and desist should stand. That's the only immediately binding thing coming out of that decision. Everything else is not automatically binding law. Even even some of the language in that little two-page opinion that the FAA is trying to weaponize. Whether an exemption is actually required for 
flight training in a limited category has not been argued yet. The case against the airman and the aircraft owner saying you cannot provide instruction in a limited category aircraft because that is compensation or hire and carriage um, of a person for compensation or hire. That hasn't been determined. Those cases are yet to be argued. Yet the FAA is pushing out prematurely a policy as if there's absolute legal clarity on this, and there's not. And that's a dangerous place for airmen. I mean, most airmen just want to be able to get training and and be safe pilots and don't want to be a test case for the FAA. And frankly, the FAA can't handle 40,000 legal cases either. Um, and so the FAA took actions it didn't have to take and has created additional confusion here for folks. And then at every instance, they're doubling down and now going after folks who are volunteer instructors is a bad sign. And that's why the associations are together and we will not allow this to stand. Yeah, and I'm glad everyone's taking a stand. Like you said, when's the last time? Literally every organization in the history of aviation is like, okay, no, sorry, you have overstepped. This is not okay. Um, it, it, it's it's wild. And I'm just baffled, I guess is the best word. Uh, if I know someone from the FAA is listening to this. So if you are, please come on. I would love to talk to you. I'll have Justine on in the background and she can, <laughs> she can just interject every once in a while. I'll be like, nope, sorry, nope. <laughs> but it's, it's just crazy. Um, I, I hate it for for the experimental, for the whole group that's going on. And, and it just really is kind of scary about their future interpretations about aviation and general aviation in general and what they kind of foresee the future of aviation in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, the ability to access training and, and uh, as often as we want and wherever we want um, and whenever we want to be able to brush up on whatever skills we feel we need, as well as, I mean, think about all the other requirements for training. So we've got currency. Uh, we've got, if you're going to provide, um, you know, instruction, you need to get five hours make and model um, to be able to do that. If you think about um, a variety of proficiency issues, but also it's not unusual particularly in planes that are more unique for your insurance company to say, listen, you need X hours of make and model um, dual time before we're even going to insure you and cover you to fly this alone. I remember I was a new multi-pilot. I had just bought my Aztec um, and that was a big step up from, you know, the 172s I had been (laughs) flying. And so I can totally understand why my insurance company said, hey, listen, we will cover you. It's going to be at a price you're probably not going to like, but we will provide you coverage. But only once you have 25 hours of dual in that aircraft. You know, you've got the multi-rating, fine, but we're not sure you're you're ready to take that aircraft on on your own. And so we're going to make sure you have 25 hours, you know, dual. and it's not unusual for for underwriters to say, listen, we're going to require for different aircraft based on their stats and their understanding of the claims. Um, you've got to have X experience or get checked out every year or recurrent um, or go visit even a certain instructor, certain approved instructor. Um, so this gets in the way of a lot of that. 
Absolutely. And I have two questions, two more questions from um, Instagram followers. One is from Amy. She says, will CFIs now require higher than a third-class medical due to this whole ruling? That's, uh, that's not clear. Uh, the FAA has actually issued some FAQs, uh, answers, in response to their recent notification of policy. And at this time, they are saying that you can still instruct uh, without a second class medical. And, you know, there are certain pe- certain times you don't even need a medical or you can be doing it with basic med. So right now the FAA says, no, we're not changing those at the moment. However, if the legal department is trying to make everything consistent, it does make you wonder whether they're going to change their perspective on that and a whole host of other things that again, would fly in the face of many decades of how things have been treated. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous because we cannot have an industry that's regulated for safety purposes be subject to gigantic shifts and pivots without public notice and comment. Yeah, so it's a very scary precedent. How do you run your business? How do you run your business? When somebody through the stroke of a pen or a legal argument can change everything tomorrow. Yeah, I mean. It's just not, it's not safe. No, it's not. And it, it's. And it's not fair. No, absolutely. 100% agree. I mean, you just think about all these companies, like you said, that have done been doing this for, for tens, for, for so long, <laughs> for forever almost since aviation was out there. And then, no, no, no comments. We're just going to change it. Sorry. But to go to Amy's point. I mean, this does raise a lot of questions. This does raise every time the FAA says, we're going to clarify this, uh, they end up clarifying nothing and raising a whole host of other downstream questions. And it's just got to stop. The next question comes from uh, Joe Chapman. He says, what trend does this set with other things like medical and mental health for pilots? That's a great question. I mean, um, the Amy's point, Amy's question about medicals is is one, but it does make you wonder if the FAA is just going to immediately pivot 180 degrees on this issue. What other issues are they going to do that on? It, it's not clear. And you know, if you look at some of the legal arguments too that they're making, like against the the volunteer instructors. There's no limits on what they can do, which goes back to my concern that, you know, if everything is just interpretation and you can have somebody come in and turn decades of what has been and that everybody is understood and everybody has been following and turn that all on its head, um, well, where's the limits to that? You're doing it today with this and, and what's on the list for tomorrow? And it doesn't matter if they intend to do it or not. It's happening. I guess the last point to, to carry this on is obviously the FAA is kind of making this and interpreting this as law right now. But we talked about how the hearings haven't stopped and it's not, it's still up in the courts. When do we expect the courts to make a ruling or even if they will kind of make a ruling in the near future? Well, unfortunately, these things can really take time. Um, the courts, the, the actions that are going on right now are not emergency actions. So if you have an enforcement case and the FAA takes an emergency certificate action, that means that 
that whatever they're trying to do, let's say it's revoke or suspend your certificate, the moment you get that emergency notice of certificate action, whatever they're trying to do is immediately effective. So if, if I receive a FedEx from the FAA with an emergency notice of revocation in it, immediately all my certificates are effectively revoked. However, um, these are not emergency cases. And so what the FAA does is send you a notice of a proposed action. In this case, they sent a notice of proposed certificate action to the instructor uh, and instructors, since there are multiple ones now in the crosshairs, and also to the aircraft owners. But what that means is that um, these cases are going to go on a much slower trajectory. So right now, we became aware of the issues involving the FAA arguments about compensation through what's called a motion for summary judgment. And so what the FAA said is, hey, judge, we don't even need to go to a trial here and argue this stuff in court. We think you should just give us a win now. And then, of course, they're saying, well, we think you should because of this D.C. court decision. <laughs> um and our interpretations, which uh, we think you should defer to. Um, so that the judge has to decide whether to grant that motion and say, okay, FA, you win. You're right. Uh, this doesn't need to go forward. Or they can say, deny that motion for summary judgment and still move forward towards a trial. And even if the FA won, which I think would be unlikely, um, given the issues. But even if the FAA won that motion for summary judgment, then the airmen can, uh, can object and then uh, file an appeal. So these things are going to take time, years, ultimately, if they go to a trial, to go through the process, have the trial happen, any appeals, etc. And that's why the associations are working so hard right now, because the legal process, while it can give some clarity and some final answers, it often takes years to get there. And frankly, we have safety hanging in the balance here, and we cannot wait years to get these answers. Absolutely. No, you're, you're 100% correct. And hopefully, uh, we, will, we will find some more out soon. This seems like it's a, it's a case that we, <laughs> a lot of stuff happens quickly, and then there's a chance it might happen in the next two or three years. So you really never know with this case. So I would look forward to having you on again in the future. Who knows? I mean, it could be next week. It could be in a couple months. <laughs> we will see. But uh, thank you so much again for coming on today and kind of explaining what's going on. And, and thank you for AOPA, EAA, every organization that's out there fighting for, for this case and for the goodwill of general aviation because it's a beautiful, a beautiful thing that we have in the States and something that I, I really and everyone really wants to keep as is and keep it fun and keep it where you can do it safely how we've been doing it for the past 50 years. So thank you all so much for everything that you guys are doing uh, and keep fighting the good fight. All right. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Justine. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. And that is a wrap of episode 180 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. As you're listening to this, you might know Oshkosh is going on. I am here. This episode's coming out on a Tuesday. I will be there on Thursday, getting there really early in the morning. I will have one meetup, no, two meetups on Thursday. One's going to be at 1030 at the Garmin Tent. The other one is 230 at AOPA, and there might be a happy hour. Stay tuned. The best way to find out where I am is Instagram. I will post where I am. Keep everyone updated. 
there'll be some meetups and there's also the opportunity for coffee. I will have coffee with me. You can buy coffee. There should be a special Oshkosh package that you can only buy at Oshkosh. That'll be shipped later with a t-shirt. So be on the lookout for that. And if it's not, then just forget I said that. <laughs> but Aviation, hope you guys are having a great day. Hope you're staying safe and uh, having fun at Oshkosh. Hope everyone's there. If not, I hope you're watching and having severe FOMO because everyone should go to Oshkosh. It's a great experience. Aviation, hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.